Let's turn to Matthew chapter 6. We will read from verse 19 to the end of the chapter. Matthew 6, verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. But where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye be good, your whole body shall be full of light. But if your eye be evil, your whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you be darkness, how great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, do not worry about your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Behold the fowls of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? And why do you worry for clothes? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or how shall we be clothed? For after all these things did the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow shall worry about itself. For the things sufficient unto the day is the trouble thereof. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for how good you are, how wonderful you are, and that we can come together this morning and sing your praises, remember your your son's birth, your son's death for our sins. And just remember what that means for us. And Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage, that you would speak to each one of us, that you would fill us all with your Holy Spirit and give us ears to hear, take away distractions so we can hear your voice this morning and see what is most important. In Jesus' name, amen. So we enter this morning upon a new section in the Sermon on the Mount. Now the Sermon on the Mount was a sermon that Jesus preached for the benefit of the people and for the benefit of people in general, for your benefit. It's not merely an anti-Pharisaic sermon. So he wasn't just getting up to preach against the Pharisees. He was preaching with the people in view. And part of benefiting the people was clearing away the false notions that the Pharisees had taught them. So, Christ benefits the people by saying, you know, this is what the Pharisees have taught you, but I say unto you something completely different. They are misleading you. If you follow their teachings and if you follow their example, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a very serious thing that Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount. But it's for the benefit of the people. The, the Beatitudes is for the benefit of the people. He's transforming their understanding. 
You see, blessed are the poor in spirit. That wasn't the way that people thought those days. That's not the way that much people think these days either. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you if you are spiritually reduced to begging. You're the blessed one. You're the one begging for God. You don't have anything to offer God. You're just begging for him to provide for you. Blessed are you. Now that was a foreign thought in Jesus' day and in our day too because the Pharisees would have taught otherwise. No, no. You have to serve God. You have to provide for yourself. God helps those who help themselves. God blesses those who are obedient and who have some spiritual capital to show to him in heaven. Jesus transforms that in their understanding. He also benefits the people by teaching them about prayer. He says, he teaches us about how we are to approach God. When we approach God in prayer, it's all about our perception of God. It's not about the words that you say necessarily. See, the Gentiles thought that you, because of their view of God, that the gods don't care about people. The gods don't have your best interest at heart. The gods don't really, they're not for you. They're against you. So if you want to get anything from the gods, you've got to tire them with prayer. Fatiger Deus, we talked about that. You need to tire them because only when you pray and pray and pray with lots of repetition will they get sick of you asking them and then they'll do what you want them to do. Jesus says, that's not the way you're supposed to think about God at all. You're to think about God as your Father in heaven who loves you, who knows what you need, and who cares for you. So you don't need a lot of words. Martin Luther said, God's not interested in a, in a lot of prayer, just good prayer. Prayer that believes in who he is. So Jesus wants the people to think rightly about the law, about prayer, about their perception of God. And this morning in our passage, which we read, he's now benefiting the people by talking about their priorities and what they should value most of all, what they should pursue first of all. The climax of this passage, 19 to the end of the chapter, is one unit. So in your mind, don't think of it as a bunch of scattered units. It's one. And the climax of this passage is verse 33. Let me just ask that you draw your attention there. Jesus tells us what to seek first of all. What is it? Seek first... Seek first a college degree. <laughs> seek first to be rich and famous. Then you'll have time and resources to seek God's kingdom. That's not what he says, does he? The word first in the Greek is proton. It doesn't just mean first in time, although it does mean that too. First in place, first in order, first in importance. This is the chief thing that human beings... Christ is saying, are to seek. This is the chief thing that you are to seek. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Notice how much Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. You ever notice that? Almost all of his parables are about the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom of God. How does it begin? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? That's how it begins. How does it end? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father, that's in heaven. In the Lord's Prayer, of course, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The kingdom of God is the priority in Christ's mind. For us, entrance into the kingdom of God. He draws our attention to this because the sad reality is, brothers and sisters, many people will not enter the kingdom of God. Just meditate on that for one moment. It's, it's wonderful to talk about the kingdom of God. We also need to be aware of this fact that Jesus also teaches us that many people, in fact, in the Greek, the word is most, will not enter the kingdom of God. Turn with me to Matthew 7.22. Jesus is speaking here of the kingdom. 
In Matthew 7, 22, he says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? These people are shocked that they're not entering in. See, on, on Judgment Day, it's not just going to be like, yeah, I'm going to hell, and I expected that's what would happen. Shocked. Surprised. Weren't expecting that my whole life. The whole, my whole life, I had another perception about what was going to happen on Judgment Day. But now that it's here, Lord, don't you know me? I thought I knew you this whole time. And he says, I never knew you, even though you thought you did many wonderful works in my name and you prophesied in my name and cast out demons in my name. I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. That's very serious. You realize when you read the words of Jesus, he says a lot of very serious things, doesn't he? Verse 13 and 14 of chapter 7. Jesus is exhorting us now to enter into the kingdom of God. He says, enter in at the straight gate or the narrow gate. So let it be known in your mind, entrance into the kingdom is a narrow, difficult thing. Enter in at the straight gate for wide is the gate. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And most in the Greek... Many there be which go in that way. Because straight is the gate. Here's why they don't enter. And narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. You should just ask yourself this morning, which, are, which path are you on? Are you on the broad road that leads to destruction, which most people are on and most people don't think they're on? Or are you on the narrow road that leads to life, which only a few will find? You see, there's only two paths. There's only two possible places you can end up. Either in the kingdom or not in the kingdom. And Jesus tells parables about this. There's two notable ones. The wheat and the tares. There's only two kinds of people you can be. Two kinds of path you can be on. You're either going to be in the kingdom or you're not. And the wheat and the tares explains this. And he says, when the Son of Man comes, when he explains the parable, when the Son of Man comes, he'll gather his wheat and bring them into his kingdom. But the tares who won't enter in the kingdom, he throws into the fiery furnace. In Matthew 25, Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats. Only two. Which are you? Only two. And he says to the goats on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. But to the sheep, he says, enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So, entrance into the kingdom, or you're out of the kingdom, and what Jesus describes is a horrible place. Which are you? Now, this rises, raises a serious question, doesn't it? How do you get in? If he's telling me to enter in, how must one enter into the kingdom of God? And turn with me to Matthew 5, verse 20. Jesus tells us explicitly how to get into the kingdom. This is important for all of us to hear. The apostles also taught this, as we're going to see. Matthew 5, verse 20. Jesus says, for I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed, exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now these are the men that in Jesus' day, everybody thought were the righteous ones who were going into the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Or put it another way, you need to have a righteousness that's greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees to get into the kingdom of heaven. Have you equated in your mind entrance into the kingdom of God with righteousness? Have you ever equated in your mind exclusion from the kingdom of God with unrighteousness? 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, the Apostle Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is the consistent teaching throughout the Bible. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And therefore, many will not enter. Number one, the Pharisees are part of that many. The Pharisees, ironically, were seeking righteousness, but they won't get in because they didn't have a righteousness that was good enough. Part of the many who won't enter the kingdom of God are actually those who are seeking to enter. Jesus said many will try to enter and will not be able. Jesus tells us that the Pharisees don't have a righteousness that's good enough. But also those who won't enter in chapter 6, verse 32, also those who are included in the many are those who don't seek after righteousness at all. He says here, the Gentiles seek after all these things, but you seek first the kingdom of God. So I think we can learn from this. There's two kinds of people that won't enter the kingdom of God. Those who don't seek righteousness and those who seek righteousness wrongly. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We'll do a little bit of flipping around this morning before we come back. Romans chapter 1. I hope you've all realized that the book of Romans is all about righteousness. That's the entire theme of the book. He explains that. The Apostle Paul explains that when he starts this letter. But I just want to draw your attention to just a few key verses here in Romans. Romans 1, verse 18. This is a important verse that sets the tone of the book of Romans and he says that God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So brothers and sisters, friends, if you are unrighteous, you will not enter the kingdom of God. God's wrath is against the unrighteous. Turn to Romans chapter 3 verse 10. Romans 3, verse 10. And notice what it says here. How many people are unrighteous according to this verse, which Paul is quoting from the Old Testament? How many people are unrighteous? Everyone's unrighteous. No one is righteous, not even one. So therefore, how many people are under the wrath of God? If you connect Romans 1.18 and Romans 3.10. Everybody. How many people, by default, will not enter the kingdom of God? Without Christ. None. How many people need to seek righteousness? Everybody. So it's not just someone out there that needs it. You know, some people think, well, I was born into a good home. Good parents. I was raised with good values. I've never really been that bad. You know, all this talk of righteousness and seeking, that's not for me because I'm just, I'm just born into that. That's for those other people out there that blew it. That's how the Pharisees thought. You know, they told that man, you were born in sin. Well, you were too, Mr. Pharisee. And Jesus calls you out and said, your righteousness isn't good enough. The purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, you must have a righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, and then he explains the law. When we read Jesus' explanation of the law, we ought to tremble because he shows us what the law requires. He shows us that the law requires perfection. If you want to be righteous, if you want to be righteous by what you do, if you want to be righteous by obedience to the law, here's the standard. You call somebody a fool and you deserve hellfire. You look with lust and you're an adulterer in your heart. If someone forces you to go a mile and you don't, then you are not walking in love and you're not perfect like the Father. You're not holy as he is holy. And on and on, Jesus exposes 
the low standard of the Pharisees, who basically said, you know, as long as you don't physically kill someone, as long as you don't commit the act of adultery, as long as you don't commit the big five sins, God thinks you're an obedient person. He says, no, no, that's not how it works. God doesn't see you as obedient unless you do exactly what he commands you to do. And what does he command you to do? He commands you to love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you love your neighbor as yourself? Your neighbor. How many of you love your family members as yourself? <laughs> Nobody. We all fall short of the glory of God. This is what sin is. Sin is when you disobey and you don't do what you know God would have you do. Sin is so serious that it excludes you from the kingdom of God and subjects you to the wrath of God. Now notice in Romans again, chapter 3, verse 20. Another very important verse. And in our Bibles, it's the word justified. And the word justified is the same word as righteous. The same Greek word is righteous. So every time you read the word justified, just think the word righteous. He says in verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, that means, therefore, by doing what the law tells you to do, no one will be justified in the sight of God. No one will be righteous in the sight of God by doing what the law tells you to do. No one will be righteous in God's sight. Therefore, no one will enter the kingdom of God by doing what God tells you to do in the law. Not going to happen. It's very simple. It's not complicated. If you seek entrance into the kingdom the way the Pharisees did, which is by doing the law, obeying the commands, being a good person, loving your neighbor, trying your best to do that, you're not going to make it, period. You need to have righteousness, and you can't get it by obeying the law, because the law will show you to be a sinner. In the last part of the verse 20, by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's what the law does. The law shows you your sin. It shows you you're a sinner. If you're honest and you look at the law and compare yourself to what it requires, you find out, you know what, it's just showing me my sin, not my mistakes, but my evil that I do. And therefore, I'm not going to enter in by that law. Turn to Romans chapter 10. We're jumping around, but Paul beautifully lays this out in a very clear way from the beginning of Romans to the end. Now here's what the Pharisees were doing. Romans 10 verse 1. And Paul's speaking from experience because he was a Pharisee. So Paul knows, Paul knows exactly how this works. And in Romans 10 verse 1, he says this, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. They're not. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. And here's where they blow it. Verse 3. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. And what is the righteousness of God? Paul explains that very clearly in the third chapter of Romans, but here he sums it up in verse 4. Christ. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And please quickly turn back to Romans 3. Look at verse 21. Right after we read verse 20, right after it says... Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in sight, for by the laws the knowledge of sin. So, okay, that's not going to get us into the kingdom. That's not going to save us from God's wrath. That's not going to do it for us. What is going to do it? And here's this surprising statement in verse 21. But now, since Christ has come, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. This is witnessed by the law and the prophets. It's foretold. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all that believe. Really? All? Yes. There's no difference. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God and notice how they're righteous and are justified freely by his grace 
through the redemption, that is through the death of Christ, through the sacrifice of Christ, that is in Christ Jesus. Here we learn how to enter the kingdom of God. When Jesus says, brothers and sisters, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, this is exactly where we need to go. When he says seek righteousness, we have two paths before us. And so am I going to follow the Pharisees here? They're ignorant of God's righteousness. They're ignorant of Romans chapter 3, verse 24. And they're saying, follow me. Let's keep the law and we'll be in. We'll be good. Are we going to follow that path? Is that how we're going to pursue the kingdom? Or are we going to heed Jesus' words? No, the Pharisees aren't going to get in themselves. Jesus says elsewhere, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you shut up the kingdom of God from others. You yourselves don't go in, and you don't let others who go in either. Why? He says, because you've taken away the key of knowledge. You're ignorant. You don't understand how to get in. You don't understand the, the standard of the law. You've lowered it. You don't understand what righteousness really is and how to get it. And you don't let other people understand either. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't explicitly tell us these things. He does tell us that we need righteousness to enter the kingdom and we need it to be better than the Pharisees. But the apostles preached righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus himself elsewhere says, whoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in him and that's the difference. Are you, this morning, righteous or unrighteous? Are you seeking to enter the kingdom of God through your own obedience to the laws and the commandments of God? Or are you believing in Christ and what he did for you on the cross? That's the difference. You're either hoping that you're good enough or realizing you're not, you're hoping in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. It's so simple. When Jesus says that only he that does the will of my Father will enter the kingdom of God, he means to believe on Christ. It's interesting, the only other place in the Gospels where Jesus ever says what the will of the Father is, it's to believe on him. He says, this is the will of God. This is the will of my Father that you believe on me. Many people read that and think, oh, it means that I have to do all the commandments. They don't understand. God's will is that you believe on Christ and know him through Jesus Christ. If you don't believe in the Gospel, which is what I'm sharing with you this morning, then you don't know God and you haven't done the will of the Father because you don't understand his heart of grace. You think he's just going to give you what you deserve. You don't understand he has a heart that wants to give you what you don't deserve because he loves you. So this is why we should seek the kingdom of God. Turn with me back to Matthew 6. It's so very important for each one of us. It's not something that you're father or your mother can do for you and young people you need to hear this too because when you're young sometimes this goes over your head but you too need to consider your own salvation your own soul and realize that one day you too will be judged by God you too are only a wheat or a tear you too are called by Christ to enter in through the narrow gate. Now Jesus gives us a warning in this passage of two hindrances to seeking first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. Two hindrances this morning. That is, number one, covetousness, and number two, worry or care. Covetousness 
or care. And he gives us a warning, a warning to those who haven't sought the kingdom of God and an encouragement to those who have found righteousness through Christ and the kingdom of God. An encouragement for them to treasure what they found above all else. You've got the main thing, he's saying. If you know God through Christ, if you believe in me, if you found righteousness and passed from death to life, you've got the main thing. And if you haven't got that, you need to drop everything else and get that. There's not a moment to lose. If you're, if you're not righteous this morning, then get righteous this morning right away by believing in Christ. Jesus tells us to seek these things, that we are to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness first because there's other things that hinder us. And we're going to look at that this morning. Covetousness and care. In Matthew 13, 22, Jesus tells the parable of the, the, the sower. And one of the points he makes is that a sower sows seed and some falls among the thorns and the thorns choke the seed so that it doesn't produce. Nothing comes of it. And he explains that to be the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this life. And I believe he's now teaching about that very thing. The deceitfulness of riches or covetousness and the cares of this life prevent people from believing in him and being saved. So number one, let's look, covetousness, verse 19 to 24. Verse 19 to 24 is one unit, covetousness, and the deceitfulness of riches. Literally in the Greek in verse 19, Jesus says, treasure not treasures on earth. Things on earth, material things, don't make that your treasure. Why not? Well, no, first of all, obviously, it's not lasting. It has no eternal value. It's often joked that you don't see a U-Haul in the back of a hearse, right? When someone dies, you're not going to take anything with you. When you die, you're not going to take anything with you. You're not going to take your, your own wife with you when you die. Naked you came into this world, naked you depart from it. It has no lasting eternal value. So why would you waste your time chasing things that essentially are a vapor? They'll be passed on to someone else. But Jesus' point here is far more serious than that. Because the point that he's making here is not just you know, don't be silly. Don't just pursue things that have no eternal value. What he's saying here is that materialism or covetousness will dull your senses and divert your attention from where it should be. That's Jesus' point. Because where your treasure is, guess what is also there? Your heart. Materialism dulls your senses. Notice in verse 22, Jesus goes on to talk about your eye. Now, this passage is sometimes confusing for a lot of, a lot of us, but it wouldn't have been confusing for anyone who heard him in Jesus' day because the expressions that he used were actually very well known. He says, your eye is the lamp of the body. What he means by that is, your eyes give your give you light to see where you're going. So all of you who have healthy eyes right now can look at me and see me. If you want to walk out of here, you're going to know where not to walk so you have to not bump into things. If you have a healthy eye, then you can see, the light can come in to your mind and you can perceive where to go. But if your eye is bad, then you can't do that. If you have bad eyes, darkness is all you can see. And it's very difficult for you to navigate where you are and where you're supposed to go. This is Jesus' point. A bad eye, interestingly enough, also in the Jewish culture, meant covetousness. Someone who's stingy. Turn to Proverbs 28.22 and you'll see this. I don't know if the NIV 
translation uh, for clarity changed the words here, but Proverbs 28, 22. So Jesus is actually playing on an expression. 28, 22. He that hastes to be rich has an evil eye. What he's saying is, whoever's hasting to be rich, whoever is laying up treasures on earth, whoever's pursuing materialism, they don't see too well. It's dark for them, and they're stumbling around, not knowing where they're going. They've set their affection on things below, and they don't know what they're doing. Their heart now is in that place. Jesus is here warning us of this. If your affection, if your priority, brothers and sisters, is not the kingdom of God, but it's your little life now and the things that you can get on this earth, whatever that may be, if it's not first the kingdom of God, maybe your eye's not too healthy. You need a healthy eye to see what's important, what is of utmost importance so that your heart will be there. He warns us in verse 24 of the impossibility to be covetous and do the will of God. He says, no one can serve two masters. Can't happen. If your heart is set on things below, it will not be set on things above. If you're pursuing things below, you will not be pursuing the kingdom of God. A quote by Francis Bacon. If money be not thy servant, it will be thy master. The covetous man cannot so properly be said to possess wealth as that it may be said that wealth possesses him. So you're either possessing wealth or it's possessing you. You're either using the world but not abusing it or it's just using you. We shouldn't underestimate covetousness. It's the root of all evil, Paul says. That's a pretty main claim. See, Jesus and Paul are both saying essentially the same thing. Don't underestimate setting your affection on things below. How many of you can relate to this? That usually it's very difficult to walk in joy and seeing God when your mind is set on the things that are happening down here. How many of you can relate to that? Whatever it may be. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Don't underestimate covetousness. In, in the book of Luke, when Jesus says this, that you cannot serve God in mammon, do you know what the next verse is? It says that the Pharisees mocked Jesus because they were covetous. That's Luke 16, 13 and 14. So when Jesus says, you can't serve God in money, they said, yeah, you can. <laughs> And I'm proof of that. <laughs> Little did they know they weren't really serving God. A healthy eye sees reality. It puts God first. It has an eternal perspective. And your heart is where your treasure is. Remember Jesus' prayer, the Lord's Prayer. The first things are first. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the first. Then comes, give us this day our daily bread. When Jesus refers to treasures in heaven, I don't believe he's talking about so-called rewards. Sometimes people think that he's talking about rewards. Like, you know, amass rewards in heaven by doing a whole bunch of good deeds. I don't believe he's saying that at all. But when he says treasures in heaven, he's referring to the things that we have through him. And we treasure those. Like in Ephesians 1, 3, you have every spiritual blessing in Christ in heavenly places. In Luke chapter 12, let's turn there again. Learn, turn there to Luke 12. Jesus talks about treasures in heaven here as well. And he's not talking about your rewards for doing good deeds. Luke 12, verse 15 
Actually, start in verse 13. One of the company said unto him, Master, divide, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. That's common experience. Quarrel with family members over money. He said, Man, who made me a judge or divider over you? And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. And he spoke this parable unto them. The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do because I have no room where to store my fruits? So he is very wealthy. And he said, This I will do. I will pull down my barns, build greater. And there I will bestow all my fruits and my goods. So now he's saying, I'm going to expand here. I've got lots, but I want more. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have much goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Don't worry about seeking God's kingdom. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, You fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose shall those things be which you have provided? And then this is what Jesus says. So he, so is he that lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. He doesn't have any faith in God. He doesn't put eternal things first. In the book of Hebrews, the Hebrew Christians were losing their substance because they were becoming, they were Christians and they were being kicked out of the community. And it's a wonderful thing, exhortation in the book of Hebrews. He says, you have believed on Christ for your salvation. You have put your hope alone in him and not anymore in the law. And because of that, you're losing things. Some of you have lost your lives. Some of you have lost your houses. Some of you have lost your goods. And he encourages them and says, you have a far greater inheritance in heaven. Don't look back. Those things are not worth anything. He talks about Moses, how Moses was a rich, rich man in Egypt. And Moses chose to lose it all to join a bunch of slaves. And in verse 13 of Hebrews, it says, Be free from covetousness, because faithful is he that called you. He will never leave you or forsake you. And so we learn that the answer to the remedy for covetousness is treasuring God above all else. Treasuring what you have in him. What do you have in him but him? Isn't eternal life knowing him? Don't let the rich man boast in his riches, but boast in this that you know me. Treasuring God is the remedy for covetousness. Jesus is not saying we should all be monks and join monasteries. Just sell everything you have and give to the poor. He said that to the rich man. He didn't say it to Martha and Mary and Lazarus, did he? Because this isn't against having possessions. It's about being possessed by your possessions. All the warnings in Scripture about being rich aren't about being rich per se, but about loving money and being covetous. So Jesus warns us, but gives us great comfort. You have a greater treasure. If you don't have that treasure, you have a greater treasure to seek for. And if you have that treasure, you have a greater treasure to treasure. Free yourself from covetousness. Secondly, it's not only the rich who need to beware, but even the poor. The next section, verse 24 to the end, he talks about care and worry. Care and worry can keep people also from seeking the kingdom of God. They make their needs priority. Jesus sounds a warning, but also gives us great comfort that the Father will take care of you and your needs. You seek first God's kingdom. You make that the priority. You don't get bogged down with the cares of life. I know many people, they think, yeah, I'll, I'll devote my time to thinking about God after I've got this certain financial issue taken care of. This is the most pressing thing in my life at the time. God will take care of you. 
And with that confidence, you can focus on what is important. Do you want to spend your whole life trying to fill a bottomless pit? What am I going to eat? I don't know, but after you eat it, you're going to have to ask that question again. <laughs> again and again and again. What am I going to eat? You want to ask that all the way till you die? That's the most important thing. No, it's not, Jesus is saying. There is a drink that you can drink and you'll never thirst again. That's the most important thing for you to seek. Christ shows us by pointing to the birds of the air and the flowers of the field that the Father cares for all of his creation. He's, he's taking our mind off of worry. He's saying, look, consider. That's one of the problems we worry. We don't consider the whole picture. We think we consider, but we don't. God cares for his creation, just like the Old Testament teaches us. God's goodness is over all of his works. Every living creature looks to God and he satisfies them with good things. Now, some people will take this and say, the birds don't work, the flowers don't work, so I won't work, <laughs> right? Is Jesus teaching us that we shouldn't work? No, he's teaching us that we shouldn't worry because our trust should be in God. He's not saying we shouldn't have a job, but you can trust in your job and not trust in God. You can say, okay, I'm going to eat this month because I've got a job. You can say, God, you will provide for me. Thank you for providing this job. I've got a job, I'm going to go to work, but it's ultimately you who's providing for me. I think the same comes to trusting God for your health. Some people say, you shouldn't go to the hospitals. You should just trust God. You ever met somebody like that? Just pray about it. But I don't think going to the hospital means you're not trusting God, though it can mean that. If you hurt yourself, you say, God's not going to help me. I've got to go to the doctor. Then you're not trusting him. But you can say, God, I trust you that you'd help me, and I'm going to go to the doctor, and it's all in your hands. Where do you draw the line with that kind of a thinking? You have band-aids in your house? Oh, you of little faith. <laughs> Jesus shows us in verse 27 just how futile worrying is, the futility of it. doesn't do anything. Show of hands, how many people have accomplished great tasks and things through worrying? Did worry do anything for you? Did it accomplish anything? No. Actually, it did accomplish something. Yeah, gray hairs, exactly. One uh, psychologist wrote, worry never robs tomorrow of its sorrows. It just saps today of its joys. That's all it does. And Jesus would say, it saps you from your eternal perspective when you're worrying about your life. It distracts you from that which is most important. Many people carry around three loads. Yesterday's troubles, today's troubles, and tomorrow's troubles. Jesus, first of all, says, you got enough trouble today. Trust in God for meeting your needs so that you can focus on the thing that's most important. You have little faith, he says. Little faith means your view of God is so small. He's not saying you have a really great view of God, but your faith in him is so small. Your view of God is too small. Don't you think he cares for you? Why are you worrying? Don't you think he's not going to clothe you? He's not going to feed you? and give you what you need? So here he's correcting their view of God, saying, trust in the goodness of God for you. Each one of you individually, trust in the goodness of God for you. That's a challenging thing, because we don't do that often. But that's Jesus' theme. If you could take away one teaching from Jesus, it's trust in the goodness of God for you. That's the remedy for worry. And Jesus shows us the goodness of God not only in his words, but in laying his life down on the cross for our sins. When you trust in the goodness of God, you're not being like the Gentiles who think they have to take care of themselves. You're not being like the Gentiles who pray thinking they have to tire the gods in order to get their prayer requests answered. You're not like them. You're like those who know the Father and are trusting in his care for you. And so in conclusion this morning, 
I want to say this. If I were just to preach this morning against covetousness and against care, against loving money and worrying about your needs, I would fail to communicate Jesus' teaching. If we as a church simply teach people, don't love, don't be a materialist and don't worry, we would fail to communicate Jesus' teaching, which is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And many churches these days, unfortunately, they don't teach to seek first the kingdom of God. They just say, don't worry and don't be covetous. It becomes a self-help thing. But the true priority is not that you just be free from the love of money, but that you are free from the love of money so that you can see clearly and seek the salvation of your soul and the will of the Father and faith in Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The Sermon on the Mount challenges us to make that the priority in your life. So ask yourself, are you righteous and have you entered through the narrow gate? Because that is of utmost importance. Don't be distracted from covetousness and care. Listen to Jesus' two remedies. Trusting God takes away worry, and treasuring God takes away covetousness. Our God is good, isn't he? He's so good that he gives us these warnings and these remedies so that we can believe in him and trust him for our souls. Enter in through the narrow gate and find him to be more than all that you need. Let's pray. Lord, you speak the most serious things and even this morning we find ourselves experiencing the very thing that you've warned against. But Lord, as you call us to think about our eternal soul, we often are so distracted by what's going to happen after church. Lord, thank you for speaking these serious things because we so desperately need to hear them. Thank you for giving us the remedies. May we trust in you for our needs so that we don't worry. And may we treasure you above all else so that we don't get distracted with the deceitfulness of riches. And may we see, Lord, that the most important thing for each one of us, whether we're young or old, is to know that we are right with you, forgiven of our sins, and believing in what you've done on the cross. And that is why you came into the world. Help us not to miss that. And this Christmas, Lord, as we remember that you came into the world, may we remember why you came into the world. May those who have not believed on you believe on you. And may those of us who have believed treasure you above all else. Thank you, God, for loving us and saving us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.